0: just happened to see it in passing. I didn't actually have it marked out to make fun of, but these things pop out at you. Ah, this is further discussion of the Mandelbrot set, coming several chapters separated from the original discussion of the Mandelbrot set in the book. So you've, by the time you get to page 221, you've forgotten all the stuff that you learned about the Mandelbrot set in the chapter on Mandelbrot. And um, if you're a good little reader, I guess you'd go back And read it over again so that you could then come come back into the discussion at the appropriate point. This is, uh, as I say, has to do with the fact that the book is organized around people instead of ideas. And here we have the the relevance of the Mandelbrot set to, um, uh, well, basically the production of graphic representations of chaos. And uh, I'll just read a little bit more about the Mandelbrot set because it's worth it. It's worth trying to understand that amazing thing a little bit better. The Mandelbrot set, says Gleick, is the most complex object in mathematics, its admirers like to say. An eternity would not be enough time to see it all, its disks studded with prickly thorns, its spirals and filaments curling outward and around, bearing bulbous molecules that hang, infinitely variegated, like grapes on God's personal vine. Examined in color through the adjustable window of a computer screen, the Mandelbrot set seems more fractal than fractals, so rich is its complication across scales. A cataloging of the different images within it, or a numerical description of the set's outline, would require an infinity of information. But here is a paradox. To send a full description of the set over a transmission line, uh, oh, I guess that he means a modem, like our uh, friend Freund was talking about, requires just a few dozen characters of code. A terse computer program contains enough information to reproduce the entire set. So there you have complexity out of simplicity again, a Typical, typical uh, situation in chaos. Uh, Mandelbrot, um, and then it describes sort of the way in which Mandelbrot approached the, uh, his discovery of the set through a class of shapes known as Julia sets, which were invented—that's J-U-L-I-A—invented and studied during World War One by the French mathematicians Gaston Julia and Pierre Fatou, laboring without the pictures that a computer could provide, and therefore they didn't uh, get into the level of complexity that Mandelbrot was able to do with computers. Um, and, but they're sort of uh, they're sort of uh, ancestors of the Mandelbrot set in a way. Um, and uh, I guess they're 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 uh, generated with differential equations, just like all of this stuff. But they're much simpler, and some of them are very beautiful, uh, very art nouveau. A lot of this stuff looks very art nouveau. Um, and Mandelbrot was playing around with these, basically, to make a long story short, and um, trying to extend them, map them on his computer using various rough grids, and. Uh, uh, at the point where everything burst into apparent chaos and randomicity. He was almost going to give up in despair, but then he got more computer time from IBM and was able to press on and uh, um, um, begin to generate the Mandelbrot set. uh, Here's a good definition of it. It is a collection of points every point in the complex plane, that is every complex number, is either in the set or outside it. One way to define the set is in terms of a test for every point involving some simple iterated arithmetic. To test a point, take the complex number, square it, add the original number, square the result, add the original number, square the result, and so on over and over again. If the total runs away to infinity, then the point is not in the Mandelbrot set. If the total remains finite, it could be trapped in some repeating loop, or it could wander chaotically. Then the point is in the Mandelbrot set. And that, if that sounds incredibly simple-minded, I guess it is. That's the kind of simplicity that lies behind the complexity. Uh, let's see. Joining the world of shapes to the world of numbers in this way represented a break with the past. New geometries always begin when someone changes a fundamental rule. Suppose space can be curved instead of flat, a geometer says, and the result is a weird curved parody of Euclid that provides precisely the right framework for the general theory of relativity, as uh, Reinman's uh, geometry did. Surprise, surprise. I mean, uh, when Reinman developed this uh, non-Euclidean geometry, everybody thought it was a mathematical joke, but it turned out that space is curved instead of flat, and therefore it uh, turned out to be incredibly useful. So, um, suppose, going back to the text, suppose space can have four dimensions, or five, or six, or, or ten, as, as, we, uh, as we discussed last time in the superstring theory. Suppose the number expressing dimension can be a fraction. Instead of four dimensions, you could have three-fourths of a, of a dimension. Suppose shapes can be twisted, stretched, knotted, as in topology, or now... Suppose shapes are defined not by solving an equation once but by iterating it in a feedback loop. And that's what Mandelbrot decided to do and that's why basically what he's got can be considered a new geometry. Um, And it goes on, talking very uh, informatively about uh, um, the Mandelbrot set and then uh, some other people who worked on it named Duadie and Hubbard, used a brilliant chain of new mathematics to prove that every floating molecule, that is, these little individual shapes within the Mandelbrot set, does indeed hang on a filigree that binds it to all the rest, a delicate web springing from tiny outcroppings on the main set, a devil's polymer, in Mandelbrot's phrase. Very nice. The mathematicians proved that any segment, no matter where and no matter how small, would, when blown up by the computer microscope, reveal new molecules, each resembling the main set and yet not quite the same. Every new molecule would be surrounded by its own spirals and flame like projections and those, inevitably, would reveal molecules tinier still, always similar, never identical, fulfilling some mandate of infinite variety, a miracle of miniaturization in which every new detail was sure to be a universe of its own, diverse and entire. It mentions uh, in passing here two Germans named Peitgen and Peter H. Richter, who did uh, the most beautiful color Examples of the Mandelbrot set. Put out some glossy catalogs and books, it says here. That sounds like something else to get hold of. More about the mathematics of the Mandelbrot set and its relation to imaginary numbers. All very fascinating, but I don't trust myself to be able to explain it very well. Then uh, getting into what's called fractal basin boundaries which basically means, uh, once again, it's a question of of boundaries between two states in a dynamic system. Uh, Even when a dynamical system's long-term behavior is not chaotic, chaos can appear at the boundary between one kind of steady behavior and another. Often a dynamical system has more than one equilibrium state like a pendulum that could come to a halt at either of two magnets placed at its base, for example. So that, for example, with a certain amount of magnetic power, you're going to get either A or B. But the, the more you turn down the power of the magnets, so to speak, the more there would be a boundary of unpredictability as to which of the two magnets the pendulum would come to rest over. And that boundary of unpredictability is precisely the area of, uh, of chaos and of the strange attractor and, indeed, of the Mandelbrot set. And, uh, ah, yes, this is nice. Fractal basin boundaries addressed deep issues in theoretical physics. Phase transitions were matters of thresholds. And Peitkin and Richter looked at one of the best-studied kinds of phase transitions, magnetization and non-magnetization in materials, Their pictures of such boundaries displayed the peculiarly beautiful complexity that was coming to seem so natural, cauliflower shapes with progressively more tangled knobs and furrows. As they varied the parameters and increased their magnification of details, one picture seemed more and more random, until suddenly, unexpectedly, deep in the heart of a bewildering region, appeared a familiar oblate form studded with buds, the Mandelbrot set, every tendril and every atom in place. It was another signpost of universality. Quote, perhaps we should believe in magic, unquote, they wrote. Perhaps we should believe in magic. That is a much nicer attitude to me than this deterministic uh, kind of philosophy that uh, Gleek seems to push most of the time. This is WBAI, you're listening to, listener-sponsored radio in New York, and it's 235.37. And uh, this is Peter Lamborn Wilson, and it's the Moorish Orthodox radio crusade that you're probably inadvertently listening to and wondering what the devil it all means. Uh, Going on, we have a scientist named Michael Barnsley, who invented something called the chaos game. Um which uh, basically is sort of, you know, create your own fractals. And uh, I won't go into the details. It sounds like fun. It almost m- makes it sound worth uh, getting a computer so as to be able to play these little games. And by the way, if you are into computers, I, my understanding is that a lot of the programs that will generate strange attractors and fractals and so forth are very, very simple. Um, as it said about the Mandelbrot set itself, a very simple program will generate this this geometric form. So, if you've got a computer, if you're one of the people who you, maybe you were listening to uh, Freund, you're com- you're a hacker out there, and you want to uh, you like to play with programs. Um, chaos is conceivably your meat. Now, this guy Hubbard, who did some very interesting work on fractals and so forth, nevertheless is. Uh, a prime proponent of the, the the deterministic school of chaos, and I just wanted to read you this one paragraph because it's important for my polemic purposes. It says, "But was chance necessary?" Hubbard too thought about the parallels between the Mandelbrot set and the biological encoding of information. But he bristled at any suggestion, he bristled at any suggestion that such processes might depend on probability. Quote There is no randomness in the Mandelbrot set, Hubbard said. There is no randomness in anything that I do. Neither do I think that the possibility of randomness has any direct relevance to biology. In biology, randomness is death, chaos is death. Everything is highly structured. When you clone plants, the order in which the branches come out is exactly the same. The Mandelbrot set obeys an extraordinarily precise scheme, leaving nothing to chance whatsoever. I strongly suspect that the day somebody actually figures out how the brain is organized, they will discover to their amazement that there is a coding system for building the brain, which is, a, which is of extraordinary precision. The idea of randomness in biology is just reflex, or rubbish, I suppose he might have said. So here, there you have it, the deterministic aspect of chaos uh, um, par excellence, uh, perfect expression of it. Chaos is death, and therefore this man sees what he's doing is not as chaos, but as anti-chaos. And we could, we could uh, oppose to that the statement that chaos is health which uh, was said by Ralph Abraham and by others. In fact, it's uh, we'll, 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 if we manage to get to the end of the book tonight, we'll come across that very quote. So on page uh, N, you've got chaos is death, and on page N plus N, you've got chaos is health. And Gleek, in the book, leaves it up to you to decide which is which, but he never really tells you that these are two opposite and opposed ideas. He does not point that out. And um, I think that that's either... A failure of thought on his part, or a deliberate um, fudging of an issue, which would be even which would be much worse. So um, that was that's Hubbard, Professor Hubbard, I guess, on uh, uh, on the uh, the implications of the chaos game. Uh, not a very nice statement, in my opinion, a rather rather terrifying statement. Uh, this, oh, the next chapter is on the dynamical systems collective, a group of young, uh, young whiz kids at uh, in Santa Cruz. I yes, and that's what the city I was trying to remember. And these are the people who did the work on roulette, and they are all very uh, sound like sound like our kind of guys, basically young crazies, and uh, they did a lot of important work. And one of their mentors was uh, Farmer, one of the older scientists who uh, important in developing um, chaos. And I found this interesting quotation from Farmer. What is it? James Farmer, I think? Well, not important. He says, uh, On a philosophical level, it, that is, I guess, the phenomenon of chaos, struck me as an operational way to define free will, in a way that allowed you to reconcile free will with determinism. The system is deterministic, but you can't say what it's going to do next. At the same time, I'd always felt that the important problems out there in the world had to do with the creation of organization in life or intelligence, but how do you study that? What biologists were doing seemed so applied and specific. Chemists certainly weren't doing it, mathematicians weren't doing it at all, and it was something that physicists just didn't do. I always felt that the spontaneous emergence of self-organization ought to be part of physics. Here was one coin with two sides. Here was order with randomness emerging, and then one step further away was randomness with its own underlying order. Now, this I would think to be a philosophical attempt to uh, find a balance between the deterministic and the anti-deterministic aspects of chaos. And I rather like this way of... uh, of expressing things, uh, that chaos should be an operational way to define free will in a way that will reconcile it with determinism, in that the system is deterministic. That is to say, the strange attractor is the strange attractor and the points will always fall within the strange attractor, not outside it. But you can't say where an individual point is going to pop up in any given time. So randomness is in fact preserved and the, the principle of indeterminacy is preserved. So you have determinism and indeterminism reconciled in chaos. And I think that's a much more fruitful way of looking at things than to get all hysterical and say, there is no randomness, there is no chaos, chaos is death, blah, blah, blah. Um, still, it's not, the, uh, it's not the most radical expression of chaos. What I would it's not, It doesn't go all the way towards what I would call, at least for the time being, what I'm calling quantum chaos. Um... But it's an interesting, uh, interesting POV. Uh, oh yes, here's a nice thing: folding phase space. Right? You uh, you make one of these diagrams of phase space, uh, which can re- which let's say it results in a fat, flat plane, and then you start folding it, and the example given here ends up looking like a donut with a sort of uh, fold in the side of it. Uh, donut folded in on itself, known in the trade as Burkhoff's bagel. So you'd like to know that. I don't know what uh, the chaotic equivalent of lox and cream cheese would be, but here's the chaotic bagel. Um. um this uh, one of the uh, one of the things that was developed by the dynamical systems collective was had to do with, uh, information theory and the relationship of information theory to chaos. And this is a very interesting couple of pages here that I'll try to summarize for you, read and, and or summarize. Um, we owe this to uh, a chap called Shannon and, uh, beyond, it says here, beyond its technical aptness to the beginning of the computer era, Shannon information theory gained a modest philosophical stature and a surprising part of the theory's appeal to people beyond Shannon's field could be attributed to the choice of a single word, entropy. As Warren Weaver put it in a classic exposition of information theory, quote, when one meets the concept of entropy in communication theory, he has a right to be rather excited, or she has a right to be rather excited, a right to suspect that one has hold of something that may turn out to be basic and important, The concept of entropy comes from thermodynamics, where it serves as an adjunct of the second law, the inexorable tendency of the universe and any isolated system in it to slide toward a state of increasing disorder. And he gives some examples of that, which I'm sure you know. Uh, Well, just like mix ink and water... In the example, for example, from Darcy Wentworth-Thompson. And eventually the ink and water will mix. The mixing never reverses itself, even if you wait till the end of the universe, which is why the second law is so often said to be the part of physics that makes time a one-way street. Um, Now, the whole point about information theory, in a nutshell, is that entropy gives you more information than order. How can that be? Uh, he says, Imagine counting the molecules of each of the ink and the water that are mixed together in some sample. What if they were arranged? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Entropy could hardly be described as high. In other words, there's still uh, there's still some order here. Entropy has not set in. But, Or uh, one could count just the even molecules or so on and so forth. Um, but uh, you're not getting a great deal of information here. You're just getting um, basically information, you know, two bits of information. But what if they were arranged yes, no, yes, no, uh, wait a minute, what if they were organized uh, uh, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, no, no, in no, you know, apparently random way? Then, order. Uh, he says, order intrudes in ways that defy any straightforward counting algorithm, whatever that means but uh, the whole point is that this it's the variety that results from entropy each v- each each bit of variety is a bit of information in order the, there's only there's less information in chaos there's a great deal of information now this doesn't mean informa- This doesn't necessarily mean you can do anything with the information but it is it is information bits of information as a computer person would say. Um, uh, quote uh, to go back to the text, to Robert Shaw, strange attract, another one of the dynamical systems gang. Strange attractors were engines of information. In his first and grandest conception, chaos offered a natural way of returning to the physical sciences in reinvigorated form the ideas that information theory had drawn from thermodynamics. Strange attractors, conflating order and disorder, gave a challenging twist to the question of measuring a system's entropy. Strange attractors served as efficient mixers. They created unpredictability. They raised entropy. And as, saw, as Shaw saw it, they created information where none existed. <coughs> <coughs> and that's very important for our, uh, for our understanding of uh, the relationship between chaos and life as we'll discover later, and I ask you to remember this important point, that entropy in itself contains the seed of an anti-entropic quality. In other words, this increasing disorder actually creates information where no information existed before. And uh, this has uh, breathtaking implications for the study, for example, of... uh, of the uh, development of life of evolution how in a universe which is running down according to the second law of thermodynamics did life manage to arise and not only to arise but to become ever more and more complex the usual explanation is that uh, that uh, life as a system of order simply borrows energy from some other part of the universe uh, that doesn't need it at the time and that, uh, in this way, the second law of thermodynamics is preserved. In other words, you have here the idea of the primal soup, and then some meteor splashing into it and setting off a chain of random events that lead to the first amoeba. Uh, in other words, once again, you've got you have to have some extra, tr- literally extraterrestrial concept of the beginning of life, because according to pure information theory. This primal soup does not contain enough information to take the form of an amoeba, of a cell, much less of a human being or a giraffe. So where does that information come from? Where, in effect, does the energy come from in an entropic universe? Here we have, finally, the possibility of an explanation of where that kind of energy or information could come from. So this is an extremely important point, extremely important point. As I said uh, at some point or another, either to you all or to some other group, this is the good news for people who've always been depressed by the second law of ther- uh, second law of thermodynamics, the heat death of the universe. Uh, if that if that concept bothers you, and it always has bothered me, um, then this is like almost a revelation of salvation. To think that entropy itself becomes negentropy or negative entropy in chaos, and that here finally we might have not an explanation of every point of evolution, but a paradigm that will finally help us overcome the really terribly deep problems in neo-Darwinian evolution, which all, as I understand it, have to do with this problem of information theory. Where the hell does all this order and form come from in a universe devoted to the second law of thermodynamics? Uh, Anyway, I think uh, we'll probably find the time to get back to this discussion towards the end of the book where biology rears its ugly head again. In the meantime, I like this little paragraph here about the, the uh, crazy folks at the Dynamical Systems Collective. Quote from the book, they had a game they would play sitting at a coffee house. They would ask, how far away is the nearest strange attractor? Was it that rattling automobile fender? That flag snapping erratically in a steady breeze? a fluttering leaf? You don't see something until you have the right metaphor to let you perceive it, Shaw said, echoing Thomas S. Kuhn, K-U-H-N. Before long, their relativist friend Bill Burke was quite convinced that the speedometer in his car was rattling in the non-linear fashion of a strange attractor, and Shaw settling on an experimental project that would occupy him for years to come, adopted as homely a dynamical system as any physicist could imagine, a dripping faucet. Most people imagine the canonical dripping faucet as relentlessly periodic, but it is not necessarily so, as a moment of experimentation reveals. Shaw said, it's a simple example of a system that goes from predictable behavior to unpredictable behavior. If you turn it up a little bit, uh, the faucet, that is, you can see a regime where the pitter-patter is irregular. As it turns out, it's not a predictable pattern beyond a short time. So even something as simple as a faucet can generate a pattern that is eternally creative. And this uh, this um, work was referred to in the Scientific American article last December on chaos, which had a uh, in fact, a better discussion of the dripping faucet experiment than we get here from the book. So if you're interested in that, I rec- I recommend that you go back to the Scientific American. Uh, I wanted to uh, mention, speaking of Thomas S. Kuhn, that I've been reading his his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And uh, I may have something to say about it eventually. I've been reading it a few pages at a time on the subway, because I like to read serious, heavy stuff on the subway. Because it keeps my mind off what's going on around me better than any light novel could do, and uh, this the science, structure of scientific revolutions is quite an old work. I think it was originally published in sixty-two, uh, right? And uh, the most interesting thing about it is that almost none of it is new is new to me. Even though I have had never read the book before, I've read uh, Kuhn's work has, has so completely taken over the uh, thinking of the hot, hot brains in uh, the history of science that all of his, I- that his ideas are now sort of universally accepted. It's like that old story of Columbus uh, being challenged to uh, make an egg stand on end. Uh, Or or rather, Columbus challenges all the other people around the dinner table to make an egg stand up on the table, and they all try it, and they try different ways, and nothing works. And finally, Columbus just breaks the bottom of the egg and then makes it stand up. And everybody says, oh, but that's cheating. Uh, If we'd known how to do that, we could have done it too. And Columbus says, ah, yes, but somebody had to think of it first. And this is what Kuhn did with the whole idea of the scientific paradigm. He thought of it first. It's a very simple idea. And uh, one one day soon, I hope we can get around to a more detailed discussion of this very, very fascinating treatise, which I recommend to anyone interested in uh, history of science. But um, that's a digression, and we won't get into it tonight. You can hear me turning the pages. That's what I'm doing. Uh... Next chapter, Inner Rhythms. The chapter titles are pretty stupid too, aren't they? Um, A nice uh, quotation from Ralph Abraham of Santa Cruz, whom we hope to hear from soon, uh, describing uh, a mathematical model with relations to, to chaos called the Daisy World, um, are originated by James E. Lovelock and Lynn Margulis, proponents of the so-called Gaia hypothesis, in which the conditions necessary for life are created and maintained by life itself in a self-sustaining process of dynamical feedback. And this would refer, again, to the problems of entropy and order that we were just discussing. The daisy world is perhaps the simplest imaginable version of Gaia, G-A-I-A. So simple as to seem idiotic. Three things happen, as Abraham put it. White daisies, black daisies, and unplanted desert. This is a a computer simulation, of course. Three colors, white, black, and red. How can this teach us anything about our planet? It explains how temperature regulation emerges. It explains why this planet is a good temperature for life. The Daisy World model is a terrible model, but it teaches how biological homeostasis was created on Earth. White daisies reflect light, making the planet cooler. Black daisies absorb light, lowering the albedo or reflectivity, and thus making the planet warmer. But white daisies want warm weather, meaning that they thrive preferentially as temperatures rise. Black daisies want cool weather. These qualities can be expressed in a set of differential equations, and the daisy world can be set in motion on a computer, a wide range of initial conditions will lead to an equilibrium attractor and not necessarily a static equilibrium. Abraham said, it's just a mathematical model of a conceptual model, and that's what you want. You don't want high-fidelity models of biological or social systems. You just put in the albedos, make some initial planting, and watch billions of years of evolution go by. And he makes the point that this simpli- the very simplicity of this kind of idea will help educate us to be more thoughtful about uh, about Gaia, our Mother Earth. As he, he says, educate children to be better members of the board of directors of the planet. Well, I don't know, it's a sort of capitalistic way of putting it, <coughs> but that's all right. An important point that, uh, once again, chaos has very much to do with the world that we do live in, uh, it has to do with the mesosphere, the mesocosm, the world shaped to our size, the world of real things that we deal with, and not uh, not uh, teensy-tinesy particles that no one has ever seen, and not black holes that no one has ever seen, but real things, like real stupid things, like daisies. Um, This chapter has a lot of interesting stuff on uh, medical research, especially to do with the heart, heart fibrillation, and so forth and so on, where chaos has made some important contributions. Uh, I won't get into that in detail, but I do want to uh, go to the summary where he says that some physiologists speak of dynamical diseases, disorders of systems, breakdowns in coordination or control, Um, such as uh, uh, heart fibrillation or chain-stokes respiration, infant apnea linked to sudden infant death syndrome, uh, dynamical blood disorders, uh, and perhaps even schizophrenia, along with some forms of depression. Uh, And then he says, But physiologists have also begun to see chaos as health. And here we have the exact opposite, as I pointed out, of uh, Hubbard's uh, hysterical statement that chaos is death.